All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Money Matters. This is our final session, and we have saved the best for last. Today, we're going to talk about a topic. If you thought unions was complicated last week, so today we talk about CEO compensation. Huge, exorbitant CEO compensation packages. We're going to talk about wealth concentration in the top 1%. We'll talk about issues such as, I mean, we'll touch upon the idea of fair wages. You know, should there be an income, um, you know, a, a maximum in, on the income? Should there be a, a, a ceiling on how much one can make? Um, and we'll talk about some Jewish perspectives, some really important Jewish perspectives on wealth, money, um, the economy, um, envy, lust, greed, etc. So these are all things, thanks Larry, these are all things that we're going to talk about today, seven deadly sins, <laughs> and other related ideas. All right, so we're going to start with, hey Mindy, good to see you. Um, we're going to start with our case study, and the way we're going to do this, as always, is that I will pull up, um, for those that are joining online, hey Deborah, great to have you here. So I'm going to pull up the, um, the PDF, and we will, uh, you guys have it here in person, but we're going to pull up the PDF as well, so that you can see it on the Zoom too. All right, here we go. Water bottle, yes, right here. Oh, I don't have to go. No, 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 I don't need. I'm good. All right. Um, there's a drought here today. I'm kidding. <laughs> All right. I'm going to read, I'm, to get us started, I'm going to read the case study and then we're going to go around to read the other text. All right. Comparative wealth, should there be a maximum wage? Now, this case study is going back a few years, um, but the numbers are actually fairly accurate today as well. And you'll see what I mean in a second. All right, if you're like me, the hot button issue of exorbitant pay for corporate executives is mainly a moral one, a matter of values. Those bloated and possibly soon to be regulated pay packages of American CEOs illustrated what might be called the plutocratization. That's a big word. Plutocratization of American life. A glorification of money as the chief ingredient of success. Executive pay in 2004... I'll tell you what the, what the current numbers are, um, was 431 times the pay of the average worker. And in the decade before 2005, executive pay increased five times faster than the pay of the ordinary employee of that company. The figures were not surprisingly even starker when CEO compensation was compared to that of people trying to survive on the minimum wage. An average CEO, the Democrats in the House Committee wrote in a 2006 report, make more Sorry, an average CEO makes more before lunch on his first day of work than a minimum wage earner will make all year. Now, this is, these are the facts in 2023. I think the, la the, the latest data is from 2022 or 2021. And that is that executive CEOs on average make, it's not 431, it's 399. So it's kind of, it's dropped a little bit. 399 essentially... Yeah, <laughs> the, the gulf is, is, we're bridging the gap. 399 times the pay of the average worker of that company. So that's, again, pretty much 400 times the amount. Now, take a look at the next page, um, and you'll see kind of a bit of a graph here. How many workers could be supported 
by the average pay of an S&P Tsugazunt, five of an S&P 500 index company CEO. How many workers could be supported by the average pay of an S&P 500 index company CEO? So Nobel Prize winners, eight. Large public university presidents, 25. U.S. presidents, 28. You can pay 28 U.S. president salary by the average CEO salary of one of the um, uh, S&P 500 index companies. Also, uh, correct, <laughs> correct. It's a, it's an investment. <laughs> Nurses, one hundred and seventy-eight. Police officers, two thirteen. Teachers, two twenty-five. You can pay two hundred and twenty-five teachers with one salary of a CEO. Maryland, does that get you happy or not so happy? All right. Firefighters, two fifty-two. Minimum wage earners, seven hundred and fifty-three. Um, I looked up in preparation for the class, so I looked up um, Elon Musk's yeah. um, compensation from, I don't know, all of his companies, I guess, combined. 23.5, what am I going to say next? Billion. Billion dollars. Billion dollars! Billion? He got 23.5 billion dollars in compensation. Now, I don't know how they came up with that number. Maybe it's annually. I don't even understand how that's possible. Um, but you know, look, listen. Tens of millions and even hundreds of millions is not is not so cra- not, not not anymore. Not so crazy. And the, the and and people, I you know, I'm not I'm not gonna I'm not gonna weigh in on my judgment right now. But people are not happy with this. People are saying, what's going on here? The company is doing well, so it's earning money. And so what's happening? Let's say the company is making I don't know a, a decent chunk of of change. So you're paying. X number, a massive piece of, 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 of the income, of the revenue, to the one person CEO, and then everyone else divides pennies on the dollar almost of that, of that CEO's compensation. It's crazy. It's unfair. And we know that it's, that is inflation. You know, the last few years we've seen a lot of inflation. I used to be able to go to Kroger or Publix, walk out with a few bags, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 dollars. Now? You kidding me? You can't spend. I mean, I find it hard to spend less than 100 bucks on stuff. It's just, I don't know, everything. Uh, I think they're doing it by the bag now. It's $25 a bag, maybe $30 a bag. They don't even, it's like whatever you can fit in there, it doesn't matter. It's like, and you know, and you know what happened over the last few years. I think everyone knows. They, in, in addition to increasing prices, instead of $239, it's now like $319. It's also, right, they shrunk the quantities. Instead of 18 ounces, it's 15 ounces of whatever it is. So it's harder and harder to live on the average paycheck. And CEOs are getting paid what seems like more and more. And you have this kind of this, what many call an inequality. And again, many are calling for there to be a, um, an income ceiling or a maximum wage. Um, you know, that there should be a maximum wage applied. The CEO should only be able to get X amount and then share the rest with, with everyone else. And so the question, uh, sorry? Why do you say it's unfair? For what? Well, I, I can make an argument it's not unfair. Oh, good, good, good. Right, 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 exactly. No, no, I said many say it's unfair. On the, oh, good. But the flip side is some people say it's absolutely fair, right? These are the CEOs, the visionaries. Without the CEO, you wouldn't have a job, et cetera. Good. So we're going to look at this today from a Jewish perspective, which I think is going to be a unique perspective um, because Judaism has a whole host of considerations that the average economist 
wouldn't have because this is based on Torah values and Talmudic law and ethics. And I think you'll all appreciate the conversation today. So today we're going to look at the legality, the morality of compensation and CEO compensation and really a Jewish perspective on wealth and even a Jewish perspective on mega wealth. That's going to be today's conversation. So in the Talmud, there's one uh, relevant source for all this. Fascinating case, a really fascinating case. Um, and this is, I need to give a little context. You're going to see this in your, um, in your booklets on the third page, which is marked as here, page 140, um, text 1A. But before we do text 1A, I'm going ask you to read this in a moment. But first, I want to give a bit of a background. So there were two holy temples that stood in Jerusalem. Well, there was first a Mishkan, the tabernacle, that stood for hundreds of years. Moses built that, and then it went through some uh, other iterations. And then King Solomon, King David wrote up the plans. King Solomon built the first holy temple. It stood for 410 years. It was destroyed by the Babylonians. 70 years of exile was followed by the building of the second temple, um, which was built by the essentially the refugees that came back from exile after the first temple was destroyed. They built the second temple and it stood for 420 years, destroyed in the year 69 of the Common Era by the Romans. So this story takes place during the second Holy Temple Era, which was approximately 350 BCE to, again, 69 C of the Common Era. Okay, and one of the uh, things that was done in the Holy Temple, in addition to the animal sacrifices, was the burning of the incense. The burning of the incense was basically, there were, I think, 11 herbs and spices. Or is that, okay, I'm, trying, I'm getting confused. No, but there were, there were, it says that there were 11 specific types of, uh, of, plant, of, of herbs, and literally herbs and spices, that were combined to create the incense that would then be um, burned each day in the Holy Temple. And the aroma would fill the temple in a beautiful way, and that was done twice a day. Now, um, the Talmud, sorry, the Mishnah in Tractate Yoma, which is the tractate that speaks about Yom Kippur, so this Mishnah gives us some insight into the family who made the incense um, formula. There was this family known as the Abtinas family. They were the ones who made the formula. Mindy, take it away, text 1A. These are remembered with reproach. The house of Abtinas who refused to teach others the method of preparing the incense. Ba thank you. Basically, this was a family, the house of Abtinas, right? It was, a fa it was a family. And they knew, or they had perfected, the formula for the incense just in the right way. And you'll see in the next text what that means, that it was the exact correct formula. And they refused to teach others the method of preparing this incense. They kept it to themselves. Copyright. Copyright. Oh, uh, uh, right. Text one, proprietary information. Take a look at what the Talmud says. Please continue, Mindy, with text 1b. The members of the house of Aptinas were expert in preparing the incense, but would not teach their art. The sages sent for specialists from Alexandria who were as skilled at compounding incense as the house of Aptinas, but did not know how to make the smoke ascend in the same way. The smoke of the house of Aptinas ascended as straight as a stick whereas the smoke of the Alexandrians scattered in every direction. Continue, please. It, get, it gets even more interesting. They wanted to corner the market. Yeah, well, and you'll see, yeah, yeah, so take a look. When the sages heard this, they said, 
all that God created was created for his glory. As it says, God has made everything for his own purpose. The members of the house of Abkina should return to their position. The sages sent for them, but they would not come. Then they doubled their hire and they came. Mm. Beforehand, they would receive 12 mana each day. From that day on, 24. Rabbi Yehuda said, beforehand, they would receive 24 mana each day. From that day on, 48. So there's obviously a Talmudic dispute. But either way, because they can't resist. But either. Yes, and they basically, the Abtinas family, having gotten fired from the job, basically the sages said, that's it, we're going to find someone else to make this. You're, you're out, we'll find the Alexandrians. They know how to make incense and perfumes or whatever it is. They knew how to compound these spices, the incense. And, but, but it didn't work. It didn't go up just in, in, a, in a straight pillar as did the Abtinas formula. And so they brought them back. But they wouldn't come until they negotiated a pay raise. And they were getting either 24 mana each day after that or 48 mana each day. Now, what's wild is that... We have another Talmudic um, text that's not here. There's another Talmudic text that says that the judges in Jerusalem, in the Sanhedrin, in the Jewish court, they would receive a living wage. Why would they receive a living wage? And it was paid for by the community. Why? Because we didn't want the judges needing to hustle another income or be susceptible to bribes. Good. Right? So we wanted them to be comfortable living wage. That's what the Talmud says elsewhere. And what was a comfortable living wage? 99 mana per year. And these guys got 24 or 48 per day. So oh. understand, they were shaking down straight up the temple. They were shaking down the whole enterprise. They were saying, we have the expertise. We know how to do it. This is what we're going to pay. Supply and demand. Find someone else. Oh, you can't. The price just went up. <laughs> That's what they did. You want to find someone else? Sure, try those guys. And when it won't work and you want to come back to us, double the pay. Then we're coming back. We're not going to come back till it's doubled. So now, one would think, right? One would think that um, the sages were upset about this price gouging or about this so-called price gouging. However, that is not the case. The reason why, if you recall text 1a, if you recall that first text that we read, it says, these are remembered for reproach. In other words, we're not happy with whom? The house of Abtinas refused to teach others the method of preparing the incense. According to the commentaries, which we'll see in a moment, the commentaries say that why were we upset? Why were the sages at that time upset with the family, the Abtinas family? Not because of the price gouging, but because they didn't share the information with others which not only would lower the price, it wasn't about that, it was about um, this information not being, hey Jeff, not being um, available or known by anyone other than this family. If something were to happen to that family, the art would be lost for all of history. And so that was dangerous to consolidate this information into the hands of one family. And this family knew it. I guess they had a tradition, but then they didn't pass on the tradition. That's why the sages looked at them not in, in, in an unhappy way. Elaine, please read. Yeah, sure. It's Coca-Cola. Oh, exactly. It's a monopoly. Exactly. But isn't Secret formula. Bingo, yeah. Isn't, you know, uh, Murano glass. The Mar they were the same thing. But and when 
we had our Industrial Revolution. Samuel Slater came from uh, England with, I don't, I, maybe I'm crazy, but I don't see anything wrong with that. Good, okay, all right. <laughs> and by the way, it seems like even though, right, good. Let's take a look, let's see the commenters. Text 2A. Concerned for God's honor, they would have taught it to others so that the glory of the temple would not be marred upon their passing. Another, that's the Me'iri says that. Thank you for reading. The Me'iri says that to explain the issue was not a financial issue. If the rabbis were unhappy with them, it was for one simple reason because you are not, you, you the Abtinas family, you were not preparing for after you pass away. No one else knows it. It's too dangerous because the temple is at stake. Now, it doesn't mean they can't hold it and profit from it, that was not a problem. This leads to the following conclusion, and this is literally the, okay, this is a rabbi from the 1500s, the Maharashtam, the Maharashtam. So he wrote a series of responsa halachic, Jewish legal questions and answers, and look at it, if you don't mind please reading one more text to be, look at his conclusion from this piece of Talmud that we just read. Although the family was remembered by the sages with reproach, this was not because of their high wages, but because they refused to teach their methods to others. Bingo. So the only issue, the only beef that anyone had with this family was that they did not have a succession plan is that the right was that the right way to, to phrase it that there was no plan after they passed away it seems like maybe they didn't even teach their kids they just kept it so i don't know it seems like it seems like the meiri is saying that um they uh, if they had been concerned for god's honor they would have taught it to others that the glory of the temple would not be marred upon their passing now does that mean the, does that mean that generation or does that mean their kids look you, we know notoriously with family businesses family businesses typically don't go on typically your mileage may vary but if it's only a family business it typically doesn't go on past a few generations it eventually starts declining and so maybe that was the concern that after you know you have the the individuals and then their kids maybe their grandkids that you can, three generations, you can kind of, you know, because you can still speak with your grandkids around the, uh, the Shabbos table and talk to them about and inspire them. But then once you have another one or two generations, typically it falls off a cliff. And if that's the case, then what's at stake here is the formula for the temple. It's not about the wages. And the Marashtam says from here, I'll get to one sec. The Marashtam says that, the, that what, what we learn from here is that there is no problem taking a high salary. There is no problem Twisting some arms to take a high salary. That's not a problem. What the, pro the problem is, not sharing the information. Yeah. But is it, this applies to only an act servicing God. Ah, excellent question. Good question. Can we apply this to other cases? So what's interesting is, that's a good question. It seems like, it seems like, the Maharashtam, who we just quoted in text 2b, the Maharashtam is saying that we can apply this to other cases. Rashi is saying, because he's writing this in Choshe Mishpat. Choshe Mishpat is one of four sections of the Code of Jewish Law, uh, the Shulchan Aruch, that deals with, this section deals with financial law, economics. It deals with um, you know, monetary law. And in Choshe Mishpat, he's saying that we, we are deriving from this story of the Talmud that in every, in every um, uh, vocation, in every industry, one, if one is the expert, if one... You're allowed to, you, you can take whatever, whatever, whatever you demand, essentially. 
Now, if we apply this then to um, if we apply this then to CEOs, CEO compensation, and we say, well, look, how many people are really qualified to run a major company? Yes. How many people in the world, right, are qualified to run a major, make high high level decisions, have a vision? you know, be able to lead the company. There's a lot of pieces involved with running a major corporation. With running anything is difficult, but scale that on a massive scale, it's a big job. How many people are qualified? If that's the case, could they, from a Jewish perspective, charge whatever they want and say, take it or leave it? The answer seems to be absolutely. CEOs, rejoice. You've just given permission. Yeah. Whatever you call their skill level. Yeah. If they take it or leave it, they could go somewhere else. So there's competition right. for their skill. Right. So because you have you have a very limited pool. It's almost like I'm just thinking now on the fly, I don't know if it applies exactly, but it's almost like NFL coaches. Right? Or even college I mean, you, yeah, there are a lot of coaches out there, but high level coaches who can motivate Millionaires to care enough to put their body on the line and to follow your program and your design without saying, I'm the superstar. A guy that can have control over a locker room, that's impressive. And how many guys are there? There aren't that many guys. So you have a supply, like your good point, Larry, like your point is supply and demand. If you don't want to pay, I'll go somewhere else. Basically, what, what happens is the CEOs are saying, and the football coaches and whatever it is, and the quarterbacks are saying, and others and heads of Wall Street are saying the same thing. They're saying that we have a unique skill set. You can't easily find it elsewhere. If you want it, you got to pay for it. And this is the price that I'm asking. And if you don't want to pay my price, we can negotiate or I'll go somewhere else. That, and that's kind of what it is. And what we're seeing from, from the Jewish perspective, from, at least from this source in the Talmud, is that there seems to not be any um, objective ceiling or cap on income. It's not like there's a maximum number that we put, say, oh, beyond that, it's not kosher. We, we don't say that at all, which means that this, is a, um, this seems to be open. Now, the question, though, is what about the fact that when people look at CEO compensation, that's very high, people are jealous. People are envious. People say, that's not right. So Judaism would say to that person, envy is not okay. <laughs> You're looking at their compensation. One second. Envy is not kosher. Let's take a look at the next text. Larry, if you don't mind, please read. Give me one second. Let's see which one I want to do. Let's actually, yeah, we'll read the next one. Please read text number three. Envy is the art of counting the other fellow's blessings instead of their own. Blessings. All right, that's a short one. Let's give you another one. You, if you don't mind, let me give you a, a biblical verse from Exodus. Take it away, Larry. You shall not cover your neighbor's house. Your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your uh, neighbor's wife, his manservant, his maiden servant, his donkey, his ox, or whatever belongs to your neighbor. Good. So here we have from the Ten Commandments, Commandment number ten. It cracked the top 10 list. By the way, before Letterman, what do you think Letterman got the idea? Top 10 list. Yeah, God has had a top 10 list. Number 10, coming in at number 10 is, the only difference is I think Letterman started 10, 9, 8, 7, yeah. uh, 10 commandments, you go 1 through 10. Whatever, it's, all, it's also okay. But the last commandment is not coveting. Don't covet the house, the wife, the manservant, the maidservant, the animals. Or whatever. I love how it specifies like five things. And then it says, oh, and everything 
anything else. <laughs> don't, don't cover anything else. Why, why does it say these things? Yeah, the Talmud gets into the, into the question of why, why mention anything if it's going to say everything. Um, but the bottom line here is we have a prohibition against covering, which means that someone is, if someone is looking at the compensation of CEOs and saying, oh, how dare they make so much money? Well, Judaism would say to that person, why are you looking at someone else? Don't be so quick to look at someone else's, hey, don't be so quick to look at someone else's uh, um, uh, um, uh, salary. Take it easy, right? Appreciate what you have. They, they've done studies that have shown, I feel like this is fascinating. People would rather make $100 if everyone else makes 50, than make $200 if everyone else makes $300, Yes. right? Because it's not about how much you're getting, it's almost about a competition with how much the other one is getting. So if you're getting 100 versus 200, you'd say 200 for sure, but not so fast. If everyone else is getting 50, right? You'd rather the 100. If everyone else is getting 300, the 200 is not good enough. It's just, it's just this thing because we're looking at others. Yeah. First of all, I want to make it clear. I'm for capitalism. Because, no, because without it, people don't... Uh, they don't and, show up, yeah. And so everybody else, lawyers, doctors, can't make a living unless there's business. Mm-hmm. Having said that, if you have a small percentage making this much, right, and this much making this much, you're going to have unrest. Right. And that's where I'm coming from. Sure. Uh, when... Roger Goodell, because my son and I have these conversations. Roger Goodell, Goodell, Goodell that, he yeah. makes, you can't believe the number he makes for this. And my son will say to me, you try to do his job. So, I'm, right, I'm, yeah, as we were saying but, before. Right? But, all right. But if you have a situation like the CEO of John Dare, let's talk about it. John Deere, we need those tractors or whatever they are. But the people are oftentimes not really making enough money. Right. And that leads, in my opinion anyway, and I taught this stuff, to such anger that you have things like the Russian Revolution, which was worse than the SARS. Forgive me for, sure. I, I mean, communism and Stalin yeah. actually was worse. That did not work out well, right? What? Yeah, that <laughs> did not work. No, but to your point, I agree with you. In other words, that we have, when you have this imbalance and people are upset, so it creates unrest, social unrest, and, and it's not good for society when there's infighting. And I agree with you that yeah, things can crumble. Unions. Sorry? That's the rise of labor. Oh, which we spoke about last week. That's what labor unions. <laughs> well, no, they were online. No, they was online. Yeah, yeah. So, so it helps. It helps. Uh, right, try to try to uh, bridge that gap. But you're right. I think you're 100 percent right. But Judaism would say, hold on, one second. You can look at what someone else is making and be jealous, or you can appreciate the blessings that you have, and try to advocate for yourself. But to try to tear someone else down so that you can get up. 
I don't know if that's, if that's necessarily the way to do it. Again, I'm, I'm just presenting a Jewish perspective on this. I don't know exactly you know, how it would exactly apply in 2023. That, I think we, that requires all of our input, but these are just some of the principles, some of the ideas that, we are, uh, that we're presenting here from the Jewish perspective. Yeah, I'm mixed feelings. I, I understand the Jews. That's how I feel. So I'm glad. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you take a guy who's a big, one of the biggest anti-Semites in history, Henry Ford. Mm-hmm. Oh. Right. But look at all the jobs he created. Look at the industry right. he created. Our whole country depends on automobiles now. Correct. So, it's complicated. It's complicated. <laughs> mixed feelings, yeah. big time. Mixed feelings. He received with Charles Lindbergh. Two heroes of the 1930s, the only Americans I'm aware of who received the Iron Cross from Adolf Hitler. Wow. Whether whether or not he created jobs. So there would have been somebody else because the time was right for what happened. I don't mean I'm passionate about it because anything. It's an interesting, it's a very interesting. Right, right. I disagree with you. It's just to argue with you. The Wright brothers invented the airplane, but they didn't invent an industry. True. So he was able to take something to. To greater heights. Hey, um. General Motors had enough people. That somebody else. Listen, it, it's an interesting. Um, it's an interesting. It's definitely an interesting thing to think about. Like if they would have not. Now let's let's look at some more. Let's look at some more. Te- yeah. You talked about the NFL and football players. Is that okay? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maryland, this is a safe space. Superstar gets 160 million dollars for 10 years. The next guy's going to want 161 million. Yes, to the correct. Yes, everyone's like, I'm the next one. I'm going to get more. Yes, that happens all the time. I'm, I'm from Pittsburgh, so I, there was a running back a few years ago, Le'Veon Bell, yeah. who held out. They wanted to pay him. These, I would say it's decent, but he's like, no, he's holding out. He sat out a whole year. He didn't take the salary, like in protest. And I don't know, he never, he was never a superstar again. Yeah, that was it. I just think, I mean, he played again after that, but he just was never as good. He just, I I don't know what happened, but it's a very interesting thing when you think about the leverage negotiations. Sometimes it works. Sometimes, you know, it depends who blinks first. Sometimes the team says, all right, we'll find someone else, right? A CEO might want a lot of money. I was listening to a podcast recently about Quibi. Does anybody remember Quibi? It was the pandemic 2020, and um, Jeffrey Katzenberg, is that his name? Yeah. DreamWorks and, Dis- yeah, and uh, Disney Mike DreamWorks. Mike. Anyway, so he w- and Meg Whitman, who was the former uh, uh, California uh, or something, was it, wasn't she Hewlett Pat HP. Wasn't she the um, New Jersey governor? Uh, she was a governor. She was a governor somewhere. I don't know if, I don't remember where. Anyway, so they banded together. They got like billions of dollars to launch this short form video platform. Basically, the videos would be no movies or shows, whatever. No more than nine minutes each episode. And you watch it on your phone vertically. You watch it like this, right? You watch it up and down, like, right, like this. You don't watch it um, sideways. You watch it like this. Anyway, they invested in it and... 
it bombed after six months. It, they shut down. Why am I saying this? I don't know. I mean, they had a lot of clout and they had a lot of leverage in the in the industry, but it doesn't always work out. Sometimes everyone says, all right, we, we're just not interested. All right, now let's take a look. Marilyn, oh yeah, Mindy. I was just, my, just a passing comment. What, I forgive my ignorance, but what did Henry Ford do? Uh, oh, he was, he published a newspaper. He published a newspaper called the Dear Dearborn, Dearborn Express what? or something that was consistently, this was in the 1930s, consistently uh, publishing hate and, and ugly things about Jews. Like all of the worst anti-Semitic tropes, he would publish it. He literally paid for the publication himself. Um, he also was, what else did he do? I don't know. He was... I'm sure, yes. Yeah, that was a bad guy. Like he got the award. No, I'm serious. Charles Lindbergh and Henry Ford. These are the two icons of the 1930s were the only people that I'm aware of, and I know that stuff, um, that got an award by Hitler called the Iron Cross, and I'm nauseated. Yeah. I don't know if they were actually involved in the, whatever, in the, the final solution, but they were definitely involved in spreading Jewish uh, um, hatred against Jews. Wait, they had, they had groups dedicated to hating Jews. So, yes, it was, it was not good. A lot of good things, I'm but it made <laughs> right, exactly. Now let's take a look at text. Let's take a look at oh, Marilyn. If I, I would, I want to ask you to read text five and text six. Text five, if you don't mind, from the Mishnah in Tractate Avot. Anything you want, Rabbi. All right. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's uh, text. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, text five. Yeah, yeah. Rabbi Elazar Hakabar yeah. said, envy, lust, and pursuit of honor remove a person from the world. What basically that means is when a person is living their life filled with envy, lust, and pursuit of honor, they're driving themselves crazy. So if you're worried about what someone else is doing, what someone else is making, you're driving yourself, Meshuggah. Forget about the other person. You're driving yourself crazy. The Talmud, ta- sorry, not the Talmud, the Smak, Sefer Mitzvot Katan, tells a really um, powerful parable about this. Um, Text six, please, Marilyn, read this one as well. A king encountered a covetous man and an envious man. The king said to them, let one of you make a request of me and he will receive it. The other will get a double portion of the same. Ah, you see, he's messing with him. All right, basically the covetous, the covetous man is someone, uh, maybe the, the English is, the covetous man is someone who is, it's not covetous, it's someone who's, no, no, that's the envious man. The covetous, in this case, in the Hebrew, it's hachomed. Hachomed is, um, he wants everything. wants everything. Yeah, exactly. He's like more like the lustful man. He just wants a lot. So he wants, and then the envious man wants more than the other guy. All right. The covetous man would not ask because he wanted the double portion for himself. The envious man would not ask because he did not want the other man 
to get a double portion. <laughs> the covetous man pushed the envious man to speak first. The envious man declared, let the king poke out one of my eyes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> the other guy gets a double so the other guy gets a double portion. Right? The, 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 the king said the deal was, ask for whatever it is that you want, I'll give you one, and give the other guy two, or double it. So the envious guy, so no one would speak because the covetous man wants more than his friend. The envious man would be jealous if the other guy got more. Right? One guy wants a lot, one guy doesn't want the other guy to have a lot. So now everyone's stuck, who's gonna go first? So eventually the envious man says, let the king poke out one of my eyes. Basically saying, this is, the point is this is how twisted the game of envy and coveting gets to where no one is actually happy with what they have because everyone's looking at the other one. And so to the point that the only thing you can ask for is something negative so that somebody has more negative than you. It's just insane. Right? It's crazy. Cut off your nose to spite your face. Exactly. Exactly. Or cut off the nose that so the other guy will have two noses, which is not, not a thing. Cut off. Anyway, so the point here is that that is the danger. It's a cautionary tale in Judaism about, the, about, about lust. Now, what we're going to do here is take a look at the next page, figure 5.2. And uh, we're not going to do this Chavruta style. We're going to just, I'm just, I'll read text A through G. Um, that's one, two, three, four, five, six texts. Sorry, uh, seven texts. Um, and we're going to see what Judaism's attitude toward wealth is in general before we pick up our conversation about CEO compensation. So, and we have conflicting ideas within Jewish tradition. Text A uh, it's from Proverbs. King Solomon writes the following, Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Provide me my allotted daily bread. How would you characterize that one? Also, correct. But what is he saying? He's saying, I don't want either extreme. I'm not interested in being poor or super wealthy. Correct. But rather, I just want what I need, and that's it. All right, text B advocates something a little bit different. This is from Ethics of, our, of the Fathers. It says, such is the way of Torah. Bread with salt you shall eat, water in small measure you shall drink, and upon the ground you shall sleep. Live a life of privation and toil in Torah. If you do so, fortunate are you, and it will be good for you, fortunate are you in this world, and it will be good to, for you in the world to come. Basically, this text seems to advocate what? Very modestly. It says, a little bread, a little salt, water in small measure, and sleeping on the ground. Ay, my back is sore just thinking about that. <laughs> Crazy. Um, I was driving by a mattress firm the other day. And my kids were like, what's mattress firm? I'm like, they sell really hard mattresses, apparently. Mattress firm. I was joking. Oh. I'm like, I don't know. They give you a plank of wood. Or they tell you to sleep on the ground. It was a joke. All right, taxi. Let's see what the next uh, text indicates from the Talmud Chakiga. There's a popular saying, poverty adorns Israel like a red strap on a white horse. Okay. Here's the first step that we need to understand that one. Apparently, red straps on white horses look good. Maybe it would be like, imagine a red racing stripe on your new or vintage, actually, Ford Mustang. Imagine a white Ford Mustang with a nice red stripe. Oh my God, how did I talk about Ford? Literally, I walked right into that. All right, we have to find something else. A Lamborghini, I don't know. Um, I was just thinking like Mustang because of a horse, but whatever. Um, huh? Thunderbird. Thunderbird, yeah. So you have a red strap on a white horse is good. So the Talmud says poverty adorns Israel like a red strap on a white horse. That means poverty looks good on Jews. Gewalt. All right, text D. Avot. Mishnah Avot says, who is rich? He was happy with his lot. Seems again that rich, that wealth is about attitude. 
Text E. We have a conflicting idea from the Talmud. Rabbi Akiva would honor, sorry, Rebbe would would honor the wealthy and Rabbi Akiva would honor the wealthy. Now it seems like wealthy is good. What happened to poverty? I don't even know. Text F. They just honor the wealthy because they might contribute to... So we're going to analyze this. The, the idea here is to present the conf- seemingly conflicting um, uh, you know, view of, uh, of Judaism on wealth, and then we're going to break it down for the remainder of the, of the session. Text F, again from the Talmud, the people of Alexandria asked Rabbi Yeshua, what should a person do to become wealthy? Rabbi Yeshua replied, do a lot of business and deal honestly. The Alexandrian said to him, many did so but did not succeed. So the rabbi answers, then, then they should pray for mercy from the one to whom the riches belong. As it says, mine is the silver and mine is the gold. That's quoting God. What, what then do you mean to teach us? That one without the other does not suffice. You have to work hard, deal honestly, and pray to Hashem. But it seems again that from this text that, that wealth is actually not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Text G, take a look at this from Deuteronomy. What is the meaning of the verse you shall, well, sorry, the verses from Deuteronomy, but teaching us from the Talmud. What is the meaning of the verse you shall surely tithe? Now, it doesn't really work in the English. In the Hebrew, it's aser te aser. Aser te aser. Tithe, tithe, which is translated here as you shall surely tithe. But the Talmud says, you know what aser te aser really means? Aser, tithe. Bishvil shetis yasher. They do a, a play on words. Not ta'aser, but tisyasher, which means be rich. Give tithes so that you may be given riches, that you may become wealthy. So bring all the tithes and try me now, says God. Will I not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until there will be, no, uh, be more than enough? God says in Malachi, what is the meaning of the words until there will be more than enough? Rami Barchama said in the name of Rab, until your lips grow weary from saying it's enough, it's enough. In other words, make God, when we give tzedakah, when we give tithing is you know, tzedakah, when we give tzedakah, God says, I promise you, I will bless you so much that you will have so much that you'll stay, stop, stop, I have enough, and your lips are going to grow weary from saying it's enough, but you'll still have more and more and more and more wealth. Again, seems to imply that wealth is not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing and a reward for doing the right thing. So what we see here is what seems to be at least some conflicting perspective on wealth and money really is, you know, there was once a synagogue that had over the office a quote, wealth is the source of all evil. Leave your evil here. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) Leave your evil here. (laughs) So so the question is, does Judaism look at, at money uh, as 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 evil as wealth is, e- is 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 money evil? What is wealth evil, or is it good? Should it be honor? Is it honorable? Is it a reward for doing the right thing? What's the deal? And of course, the answer is going to be all of the above. But let's try to sort this out by looking at some other ideas. And the way we're going to do this is by looking at how um, wealth can lead to evil. Can not always, but can lead to evil. Take a look at text seven. I'll read this one. A very wise man once said, this is actually very powerful. A very wise man once said, wealth has three evils. Number one, most people attain it through forbidden means. Most people is a a hot take, but nonetheless, we're going to break this down. Number two, if it was attained in ways that are permitted, it will be spent on something forbidden. And number three, the person will forget God and say, it is my strength and the might of my hand 
that has accumulated this wealth for me. So what are the three? Now, this is not guaranteed, but this is saying that wealth could lead to three evils. Number one, it could be earned in an evil way. It could be spent in an evil way, or it could lead to an evil philosophy, one in which one discounts the input of God and takes all the credit of their success for themselves. Does that make sense? Let's break down each one one by one in the context of CEO compensation. Uh, because remember, that's our case study. Our case study is CEO compensation, and w- which is out of, lo- or out of proportion, disproportionate to what the employees of that company or whatever are making. The CEO is making a lot more. And so we're saying, what are the three possible evils? Well, how it was acquired, how it, how, how it is spent, and the perspective in which uh, the, 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 the attitude that one has to that process. So let's take a look at another text that deals with some stuff that happened in the recent past. The heels of the financial meltdown of 2000 and what was it, 2008? So here we go. Remember the, the bailouts? Lots of bailouts? AIG? Okay. Let's take a look. Obama administration officials, this is, a, this is a text that goes back a few years. Obama administration officials and Republicans alike. Well, that's a sentence to start with. Wow, <laughs> Democrats and Republicans alike. Is that even possible? We're nearly universal in condemning, listen to this, the $165 million in bonuses that AIG, which has received more than $170 billion in taxpayer bailout money from the Treasury and Federal Reserve, is to pay executives in the business unit that brought the company to the brink of collapse last year. Listen to this. The company, huh? The company was run by a Jewish family. Really? Interesting. All right, so we'll speak in more general terms. (laughs) Let's say a company that rhymes with AIG. Right, so this company ran into, you know, ran, uh, um, was on the brink of collapse, it got $170 billion in taxpayer money, and they're using some of that money to do what? To give these big payment packages to the executives. Senator Mitch McConnell, the Republican minority leader, isn't he in the news lately? He's yeah. coming back to work today. He had like a, a health thing, right? Yeah. yeah. Senator Mitch McConnell, the, uh, the Republican minority leader, worried about the message the bonuses sent to other companies receiving bailout money. If you're going to take the government as a partner, the message here, I'm afraid, to any business out there that's thinking about taking government money is, let's enter into a bunch of contracts real quick, and we'll have the taxpayers pay bonuses to our employees, he said. AIG, nearly 80% of which is now owned by the government, has defended its bonuses, arguing that they were promised last year before the crisis and cannot be legally canceled. In a letter to Mr. Geithner, Edward M. Liddy, the government-appointed chairman of AIG, said at least some bonuses were needed to keep the most skilled executives. This kind of goes back to what we said before. We cannot attract and retain the best and the brightest talent to lead and staff the AIG businesses, which are now being operated principally on behalf of American taxpayers if employees believe their compensation is subject to continued and arbitrary adjustment by the U.S. Treasury, he wrote to Mr. Geithner on Saturday. Basically, again, this is from the New York Times in 2009, basically the, 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 the government, government officials are saying, how dare you? How dare you take bailout money and give you know, the full amount of these exorbitant uh, contracts to be paid out to the, to the C-suite, to the executives, at a time of crisis? And what they're saying is, first of all, it was the promised. created the crisis within a, 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 Right, and we bailed you out, and now, and now that's, that seems wrong. 
It seems like it's ill, it's ill-gotten gains, right? And then they're saying, well, yeah, two things. Number one, it was promised before the collapse, and number two, if you want us to keep these executives and to run the business because now it's being operated, you know, in tandem with the U.S. government. Now we for sure need to pay these because then we're going to lose our talent and the whole thing is going to collapse again. So, again, this text is to kind of highlight the complicated and and really contentious um, issues that are surrounding um, uh, uh, executive pay, but specifically in the context where taxpayers are footing the bill. Now let's take a look at text 9a. Let's look at another text. What do Disney, AT&T, Exxon, and Verizon have in common? Based on economic performance and what they paid their CEOs from 1991-2002, a new academic study argues that all these firms were headed by CEOs who were paid too much. These firms, said the researchers, are among a group of companies headed by CEOs whose pay is negatively related to job skill. The CEOs seem to be rewarded, in most cases quite amply, for their bad performance. Disney's Michael Eisner, who's no longer there, for example, was paid $38 million above the industry average when for three out of six years, the company's performance actually declined in relation to other firms in the entertainment industry. Lately, there has been legitimate concerns about CEO pay, said Stanford professor Robert Daines. Barry Bonds, remember that guy? Mm-hmm. I remember that guy. Barry Bonds makes a lot of money because he's a great baseball player. In general, the best played players are also the most skilled, said Daines. The main question is, is the CEO labor market working in the same way? Do you make more money if you're better at it? Or is the market for CEO pay broken in that CEOs receive high pay for something besides skill, like having friends on the board? Mm-hmm. Boom, the whole text was for that last line. In other words, who decides the pay? For CEOs, the board. By the way, there's a law that's passed that all shareholders vote on. I think there's a law that says that shareholders also vote on it. But the board, right, exactly. The board typically leads the charge. And who's the board comprised of, composed of in in many cases? Friends of the CEO or associates of the CEO. So therefore, there seems to be a quid pro quo or a, in layman's terms, I will scratch your back, you scratch my back, right, of compensation where the CEO sets the payment, sets the salary for the board, the board sets the salary for the CEO, and they're all back-scratching. Text 9b, let's look at the next one. There are very serious conflicts of interest in the boardroom. Many CEOs also serve as chairpersons of the board or directors, sorry, of the board of directors of their firms. The CEO is often involved in selecting members of the board and tries to ensure that these individuals have some connection and or loyalty to the CEO and will rubber stamp anything the CEO desires. It is, therefore, not unusual for the board to be filled with friends of the chairperson. A compensation committee consisting of members of the board usually decides how much to pay a CEO. In theory, it should be independent of the CEO. In a large number of corporations, however, Members of the compensation board have some connection to the CEO. They might do business with the company, work for the company, or even be related to the CEO. It should also be noted that the CEO may decide on the compensation for the board members, so, so it may be difficult for them to be objective in deciding upon the CEO's pay package, one which quite often includes very generous stock options. Needless to say, in many cases, board members are far too cozy with upper management and permit excessive compensation. So here is the take. The, we, the question that we can ask. It's not a take, it's a question. If we posit that in Judaism there is no such thing as a, as a, as a salary ceiling, there's no such thing as a cap, pay whatever the market you know, demands, that's true. But if we also posit that when it comes to wealth there are three dangers. Number one, making sure it arrives in a kosher way. Number two, making sure that it's spent in a kosher way. And number three, making sure that it does not lead to an unkosher attitude. 
And if we look at the first scenario, the first consideration, making sure that the money is earned in a kosher way, one could ask the question, is the CEO's pay package earned in a kosher fashion? Yes, they're doing a job, highly skilled job, etc. But who decided, who determined, who signed off on how much that pay package is? Is it perhaps people that are not working on the, based on the interests of the company as a whole or on the shareholders, but rather based on their friend or associate in the CEO suite? What were we going to say? Right, exactly. And so the question, therefore, is, is that even kosher? Is it kosher? Is it not? I'm not saying it is. I'm not saying it's not. No, but the question is, is it kosher? Based, I mean, I think crazy, but it's usually based on some formula of profit and productivity. Right. In addition to that, though, the question is if there's also some sort of, um, some sort of other consideration that is more based on, um, when, you know... Mm-hmm. Uh, his successor, I forget who he is, but he was one of these famous CEOs, brought Home Depot way down. Interesting. And But he had a, in his contract, had a parachute that said if, if they get rid of him, he gets $225 million. No matter the performance. Wow. Which Home Depot did they? So it's, so, okay, so let's look at that. So how do you get such an agreement? Now, one could argue that if you want a top executive, you have to have that in, you have to have those bonuses in. But one could also argue that maybe it's not in the best interest of the company to have that, and then who is deciding? Now, I'm going to read a few texts. Actually, let's go back around. Mindy, do you mind reading text number 11? Here the Torah speaks about the prohibition against bribe-taking. You shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe is blind to the clear-sighted and pervert the words of justice. And if you don't mind, please read also text 12a. The daughters of Zelopahed. In Hebrew, I don't, I don't even know how to pronounce that. In, in, yeah, in Hebrew it's Tzalafchad, which to me is easier, but whatever. Anyway. Came forward. They stood before Moses saying, Our father died in the desert, but he was not in the assembly that banded together against the God in Korah's assembly. But he died for his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should our father's name be eliminated from his family because he had no son? Give us a portion along with our father's brothers. So Moses brought their case before God. Basically what happened was, here was a fellow who only had daughters, no sons, Mm -hmm. and their father died, and they were not slated to receive any portion in the land. This was still before Israel, before they entered Israel, because there were only girls and no boys, so there, there hadn't yet been formulated the law um, of succession of that, it, that inheritance would go to the daughters if there are no sons. And so they said to Moses, they said to Moshe, they said, look, our father died. He died for his own sin. He wasn't banding against you in Korach's uh, revolt. Um, but why should our father's name be eliminated? We, give us a portion. What does Moses do? He brings the case before God. How come he didn't answer it himself? By the way, the answer was, give the girls a portion. If there's no boys, give it to the girls, obviously. So the, right in the same tribe. Good, right, exactly. So keep it in the tribe. Excellent. Um, but in general, it seems like a fairly straightforward case. So why does Moses Moses bring the case before God? Take a look at it at a very innovative answer by Rabbeinu Bechaya. This is text twelve B. Mindy, please read this one as well. Because the daughters of Zalafahad revealed in their complaint that their father was not part of the group that hated Moses, they demonstrated an affinity with Moses. If he had adjudicated their case, it might have appeared as if he had been bribed by their words. <laughs> Hence, he refrained from ruling. They said, oh, our father was always a big fan. 
He wasn't, he, when the revolt happened, Korach's revolt, he didn't join in. He was always a, 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 a team Moses type of guy. Now, will you hear our case? You know what Moses says? Nope. Nope. Taking it to God. Because if I tell you sure you can have the land, maybe it's because you just flattered me or maybe because you just, because you verbally, that's not a bribe, but like because you made me feel good about myself and about your family's affinity to me. So therefore, Moses says, I'm out. I, I'm not adjudicating the case. So here's, here's the application. Anyone that is making a financial decision, right, on behalf of someone else that has any sort of bias is really unfit to make that decision. So if the board, again, if the board is biased for whatever reason toward the CEO and and they're acting on behalf of the company and the shareholders, that seems to be a conflict of interest and maybe even on some level immoral. So the Jewish approach would probably be that the board, the compensation board, should be different, should be a bunch of outsiders that are not swayed by, just like Moses takes the case to God, um, we have to have a God squad here. Now, we have to have like another, like an outside squad to kind of keep that propriety and, and, and avoid impropriety. Um, okay, make sense? Yeah. I think so. Okay, but I wasn't asking myself. I was asking you guys. Now, yeah. What would the ruling be, or opinion be, if you were the person in charge of uh, deciding salaries, whether it's low level on up or the board level, but you decide your own salary too? No one else decides it. Right. You decide everybody in the company. That so that would seem again to be a little bit of a conflict of interest. Would seem. Yeah. What if you own the company? Right. Well, you do. Yeah. Well, I think the que- I think the question is more to me. The question is more of when it's a public company, which means that now it's owned by a lot of people, right? Even if their percentage is really small, but now you're acting on behalf of everybody. So to act based on bias or based on favors and whatever. It's just not to do. In a case where it's you know individually owned or family owned, maybe there might be a, dis- a difference halakhically about that because determining your own salary that might be a bit of a difference. But I would say definitely when it comes to CEO compensation, in a case like Disney or Coca Cola or whatever it is, and you have the board that's like yeah or Home Depot, like sure was it public back then when that happened? It was public. So if the board says absolutely, and it's because they know the guy or whatever it is. You're spending money that belongs to other people also now because of a personal bias that seems to be not not so kosher. Or perhaps it could be not kosher without the proper safeguards. And the other example, the CEO could also determine the salaries of the board members. So it was like a mutual beneficial. Right. I'll give you a raise. You give me a raise. That seems seems to be even more problematic. Exactly. Now, um, let's talk about the second issue. Just a few more minutes. So we'll talk about the last two issues quickly. The second issue, the first issue was how we got the money. It was the money um, earned or received in a kosher way. Second issue is how it's spent. Um, of course, in Judaism, when a person, re, uh, um, you know, what, what, whenever we earn, whatever we earn, a portion of that should be given to tzedakah. So let's take a look at some of that, um, some texts that speak to the mission, sorry, the mitzvah of tzedakah and really the mission of of uh, distributing wealth, as it were, to those in need. Text 15. Elaine, please read this one. Yeah, we're skipping a few texts. The text 15. Do 
not excuse yourself by saying, why should I compromise my wealth by giving it to the poor? Know that the money is not yours, but a deposit. You are meant to do with it as the depositor wishes. His will is that you distribute a part of it to the poor. Now this is the rush, Rabbi Yaakov ben Asher, uh, which is a, who was a great halachic uh, um, uh, giant. And he is essentially saying a perspective. He's sharing a perspective on, on wealth. Think of it as God is blessing you with what you have plus some extra to then distribute to those in need. Text 16a, how much is this? If you don't mind, Elaine, please read this as well. How much should one give? If one can afford it, one should provide as, poor, one should provide as per the needs of the poor. If, however, one cannot afford this, then the optimal way of fulfilling the mitzvah is to give a fifth. Average fulfillment is to give a tenth. And to give less than this is mean spirit. So this is, in the, thank you, this is the, this is the not mean, this is the a code of Jewish law, the Shulchan Aruch. And he says, Rabbi Yosef Kaur says that the, that the average way to do this mitzvah is a tenth. You want to go more generous, a fifth, but a tenth would be the mitzvah of tzedakah, of giving. So again, the perspective is that Hashem blesses us with, um, with what we have. Plus, sorry, with what we need, plus a little bit extra to give to someone else. What's fascinating about the laws of tzedakah, it's not here, but just from my recollection, the Torah says that when you give someone tzedakah, it's important to give them a little more than they need. They can give. Because every person needs not only part of, one of a human need is to give someone else. So if someone has a need and you're giving them the need, you're fulfilling their needs. Part of their needs to give. So you have to give them a little extra for them to give. Judaism has a unique look on, on society and how we take care of each other. And that is that we always look at our blessings as some for me and most for me and a little bit also to give away. Just an interesting aside. Again, it's not here, but an interesting aside. When it came to miser, tithing, and so different forms of tithing, agricultural tithing, animal tithing, and monetary tithing, which we just spoke about. But when it comes to ag- um, ag- Agricultural tithing, the tithing of animals. Sorry, not, not agriculture, whatever. Animal, animal tithing. So when it comes to animal tithing, the Torah says the following, or the Talmud, uh, the Torah says the following, the Torah of the Talmud that defines it. The, how would they do it? The farmer would take the animals, put them in a pen, and have, one, have a, a door, a gate, whatever that opens up that would allow one animal out at a time. And the, the, the farmer would stand there with a rod, and count them as they came out one by one. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And the tenth would mark with, um, there was red paint on the stick, would like touch the head of that animal and mark it as the, t- as the ten, number ten. That would be then given as a gift to the, to the temple. And then again, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten gets the bop in the head. And then it, the very light, gentle paint, not a bop, right? Not a, no, no animal abuse here. And then again, one through ten, one through ten. The commentators ask the question. Commentators say this seems like a very inefficient way of doing things. Why not just count the total amount of animals? You have 100 animals? Take the first 10. <laughs> it's 10%. It's not hard to figure out the math. One out of every 10. Why do you have to go through this whole dog and shoney slash sheep and goat uh, show and have them all go out one by one, etc.? And so I saw once a commentary that's really powerful. It says like this. The psychology is, the farmer thinks to himself, one for me, two for me. Three for me, four for me, five for me, six is for me, seven for me, eight for me, nine for me, one for Hashem. 
or one to give away to someone else. I can handle that. When you count how much you have, you can, you can afford to give away one. But if you're told you have to give away 100 animals now because you have 1,000, you're told 15, you, you'll, feel the, you'll, feel the, you'll feel the bite. But if you think about how much you get to have, how much you have, and then only one out of 10, it's, it's psychologically a little easier to do. Anyway, the point is like this. The point is that when it comes to CEOs, one consideration is how they got the package. The next one is what they do with the package. What they do with the money. Now we know famously there's this living, what is it called, the living trust, pledge, something, where billionaires are like ple- pledging half of their wealth and whatever, and that's an amazing thing. That's very Jewish in concept. And indeed, more should learn from that. Bill Gates. Bill Gates, yes. But half the people who participated in are Jewish. Yeah, there's a lot, and there's also someone local who did, who has um, started an initiative for a Jewish form of this. His name is. I don't know. <laughs> Levin Howard Levin. Um, oh, Levin. Um, when I had that show. Levin. He, he's. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. He's an older guy. Yeah. He ran the Sands Hotel for the other Jewish billionaire. Um, what's his first name? Yes. I believe if we're talking about the same guy, yeah. this guy started a thing to, uh, to get, just like Bill Gates, with, but he said to give to Jewish charities. Let's do a pledge for Jewish philanthropists and, 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 and people of means to give specifically to Jewish or Israeli um, you know, interests because we got to take care of our own. I think his first name is Mike or Michael. Yes, I think you're right. I think you're right. Which is, by the way, is, is fascinating because when you think about it, universal charities, not to discount any charity, all charities are, are, are amazing and do good work. Um, but universal charities, there are, there are many people in the world that can take care of universal charities. But Jewish charities, who else is going to take care of Jewish charities if not we? Who's going to, we can't rely on anyone else to save the whale. I'm not putting down anything. To save the whales, to save this, that, or the other. To, to, to build a, you have other, lots of people. But for Jewish interests, Israeli interests, you're starting with a smaller pool. So I think it's important that this type of uh, initiative get off the ground. And I think he's, he's been successful, and I think it's a beautiful thing. But it's a very Jewish thing. So the point is, the point is number one, where did the wealth come from? Or how, how, how did you get that, that, that package? Number two, what are you using it for? So I have a good story. Uh, my first job, uh, we're one of my first jobs. I was assistant hospital administrator of a Catholic hospital. Nice. It was run by the Jesuits. And this was the 1970s. The biggest hospital supply company was called American Hospital Supply. It was a yes. public company. They had probably 70, 80% of the market. Well, the CEO of that company uh, was named Foster McGall. And back then, he, gave, he wasn't Catholic. But he gave $20 million wow. to the hospital. Um, and in his speech that they honored him, uh, he said, it's not my money. It really belongs to God. And, wow. Wow. That's God beautiful. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Good. So, in other words, Judaism would say, make a killing. Make a ton of money. Make sure it's kosher. Make sure you got a kosher in a kosher way. But make a lot of money. And then... Utilize the money in addition for your own stuff. Utilize it for good things. All right, the last thing, and we're going to close it out. The last thing we'll talk about is the psychology of wealth. Judaism maintains that even when someone succeeds in a very, very big way, 
It's important to remember where it came from, to remember the blessing, the divine blessing. You know the joke, everyone, I'm sure everyone knows this joke, about the guy who's late for a meeting and he's find, trying to find the parking spot and he's circling the parking lot. Yeah, I, I'm, I, yeah, anyway, so the guy's circling the parking lot and he's late for the meeting. He's thinking, oh my gosh, if I miss this meeting, I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna lose the deal. He starts praying to God, God, please send me a parking spot, nothing. All right, I'll, I'll go to shul, I'll go to synagogue next Shabbat, next Sabbath, nothing. All right, I'll go the next month. I'll go every week for the next month. Nothing. I'll wrap tefillin every Sunday for the next month. <laughs> he keeps on promising. Eventually, a spot opens up. He tur- looks, lifts his eyes upward and says, nah, forget the deal. I, I got a spot. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the way sometimes these things work, where you know when we're in need, we think about God, but when we have, we forget about God. And this leads us to our final conclusions. Um, take a look at text number 17. Beware lest you eat and be sated, build good houses and dwell therein, your herds and your flocks multiply, your silver and gold increase, and all that you have increases, and your heart will grow haughty, and you will forget God your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and you will say to yourself, my strength and the might of my hand have accumulated this wealth for me. I think we read this before. It was part of another text, but the point here is, that uh, Moses tells the Jewish people before his passing, he says, you gotta be careful. Here's the danger, the danger of success, the danger of forgetting where you came from, the danger of forgetting that God really is behind your blessings. And so with this text in mind, we can draw, I think, a full picture of the Jewish perspective on wealth and CEO compensation. What is the Jewish perspective on wealth, right? Should we live impoverished? Is it like that red stripe on a white horse? Is it that we should eat bread and water and, sorry, bread with salt and drink water and, and lie down on the floor? You know, there is value in humility. There is value in that type of, um, that type of austere, is that the right word? Austere living. There is value in that. However, modest, yeah, that's better. Modest living, there's value. But fundamentally, there's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with having the means especially when it's in the context of doing good things with what you have. There's nothing wrong with that. On the contrary, it's something to, uh, to, to, to be, uh, um, a, it's a goal that one may aspire to. Now, for someone who feels like I won't be able to pass the test of wealth, like if I, if I won the lottery, I would forget who I am. I would forget where I came from. I would forget what to use. I would become haughty, arrogant. I don't want it. Okay, someone says that, sure. But someone who has wealth, what that means is God has entrusted them to do good things with that. And that's why the sages would honor that person. It was not just to get from them, but the sense that God has trusted them with such a big test. Certainly there's someone of, of, of great value that, uh, that is given that test. And so this leads us to the final text, the final two texts. And I'll close it out. Re- two readings from the Rebbe which I think really encapsulate this entire discussion. Text 18a and 18b. It is well known that luxuries can disturb a person, even physically. Garments must be the right size. It's not only a problem if they're too small. Garments that are too big can easily entangle the person. Material drives like garments are external to the person and must fit properly. If they are too big, it is not only harmful spiritually, but physically as well. The test of wealth is unfortunately a very difficult one. By the way, the Rebbe said this a few times, including in regard to who was that wealthy man who became paranoid? Um, uh, Hughes, Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes. 
The Rebbe once spoke about him at a Fabreng and at one of his talks and said, here you have someone who had everything in the world, but unfortunately it, it, it became too overwhelming for him and you know, led him down a negative path. And so there's a test of wealth and it's difficult. But look how the Rebbe concludes this. Nevertheless, halavai, if only we were all wealthy, if only everyone would have the opportunity to struggle with this mighty struggle of soul and body and pass the test of wealth. Final text, 18b, people should be wealthy. We clearly see that wealth can be used for good purposes and that the more money one has, the more one can do good. All good endeavors in this world require money. And that would, that, that's the final, the final message. And we know that, right? Money is, if you want to get something done, you need the means to make it happen. And so money is not evil, unlike the joke that I said before, or despite the joke I said before, money is not evil. It could lead to evil, sure. It could lead to negative stuff. But money in and of itself is not evil. Money is powerful. And like anything that's powerful, it can be used for good or for the opposite. And so the message for us today, um, the one that I, at least I, wa- I want you to, I would like for you to walk away with is money is powerful. It's imp- because it's so powerful, it's important to make sure that we're getting it the right way, we're using it the right way, and that it's not turning our heads inside out. It's not, you know, messing us up internally to look at things the way that we shouldn't. Rather, it should, we should maintain our our perspective, even with the wealth. And so vis-a-vis CO compensation, Judaism would likely say the following, earn as much as you can, make as much as you want. Make sure though that it's kosher, sorry, that it's accrued in a kosher way. Make sure that it's spent. Some of it is spent in the place that it should be spent and make sure that it doesn't get to your head. Make sure you remain humble and grateful for the blessings that you have. Whether you're CEO, or anyone, I think these are valuable lessons. Let's make sure that we're earning honestly, we're spending righteously, and that we maintain our faith and trust and gratitude to God. And that's it for Money Matters. Thank you very much for joining me for these four sessions. Um, hope you enjoyed our conversations. Um, Would you consider doing uh, part two? Sessions, uh, yeah, this is the last uh, one. This is the last one. We could, yeah, yeah. I have, there's a lot of um, topics that I want to cover. Um, these are some of them. I'm also thinking about doing a course on American Jewish history. Oh, please. Which I know, because you, you planted the seed, Marilyn, yet last week you planted the seed in my head about doing a course on history. Oh, if you study history, you should study Jews because that, that is the group we go back before Christ. We go back. <laughs> yeah, he was like, Jewish. Yeah, yeah no, no. I, I'm, we go back forever. Way back, so far. And, and, and I just, um, and you're so nice. You let Thank me you. disagree with you. I love I, disagree. I, I, I try not to take a position. I just try to present. <laughs> No. Right. It's passion. How was that? <laughs> no, passion. Passion is good. No, no. It's good to have. It's good to have. Henry Ford and Charles Lindbergh. I want to do with not allowing Jews to come into this country. I mean, I think everyone's. Oh, by the way, I have the copy from last week for you. I have it here. But remind me before you leave. I have it in my bag. Um, could I just share something with the group? Sure. Absolutely. Well, but, but let me just share this thing. I have a, my potential name for this course is called Red, White, and Jew. Yeah. But it may be a little too. It may be a little too corny. I don't know. 
<laughs> red, white, and Jew. <laughs> I know, but like if it's officially on a you know on a paper. Yeah, that's a good title. Uh, it's another connotation. I know, I know, right. I like that. All right. We'll, yeah. We'll come whatever. We have to think. We, we have to think about that. But um, and also, so again, as I, I know, give me one second here. One thing. So we're starting a high holiday boot camp next week, next Wednesday. But it's it's an evening class. Three evening sessions, September 13, 2027. We're doing one class about Rosh Hashanah, one on Yom Kippur, and one on Sukkot. Rosh Hashanah class is called The Secret of Shofar. Yom Kippur, Room for Improvement. And Sukkot is the ascetic, ascetic materialist. Anyway, so that's coming up. Can't almost pronounce the title. I would be here, but I'm going to be in California with my son. Well, enjoy the holiday. Thank you. Enjoy the holidays. All right, now, Marilyn, the floor is yours. I just have a really nice... <laughs> Ready. Um, I brought up my father, who's really good guy. Anyway, he's one of those people came here without a this kind of thing. He was a little kid, and he became a very successful businessman. I don't mean like Henry Ford, but I mean <laughs> he was in what was called the schmata business in New York. In 1962, he says to my mother, all right, we're going to Europe. And she says, Mike, for goodness sakes, we couldn't wait to get out of Europe. <laughs> and, she, and he says, well, we're going anyway, and we're going to Rome. Well, we didn't know it. It was the summer, and he had gotten these tickets to hmm. go to the Castle Gondolfo. Now, what in the world? Do you know what that is? Okay. The Pope, every summer, spends the um, holiday, the summer holiday, this place called the Casa Gandalfo. I don't know what my father did. And he... <laughs> to get the tickets. <laughs> to get the tickets, no idea. And we're right in the front. So out comes the Pope, seriously, on this thing and blesses him. We're all blessed. My father had grown up in um, Russia, and I said to you that Communism actually was worse, worse than, than that. that. And hit under the bed and everything else. And this Pope said, Jews were not responsible for the death yes, of Christ. Christ. My father put his money where his mouth was. And we all slept and were blessed by this Pope. And he gave money to that hmm. Pope. And he hated the Catholic, I want to, but he just, we were talking about kosher. Right, because he felt like this was well, interesting. It, it was, it was. There's, and I just thought that that would be. There's a name for what the, what the Pope declared. He, it was in writing what he declared. Yeah. Oh, yes. It, it was a formal, it was yeah. a formal oh, recant, uh, yeah. recanting of the, the public. Yeah. Anyway, it's 60 years old. And when you hear anti-Semitic, you do not hear them in the Catholic Church anymore. And during the Passover holidays, which happens to be my favorite holiday, the good guys won and all that. But in the, you're laughing, but in Europe, this was a terrible time. Yeah, blood libels. Uh, so so um, I just thought that you that might was good. like that. That's a good I story. like it. Good.